Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Hello, and welcome to the French History Podcast. My name is Gary Chirot. Episode 10, Destiny Meets Opportunity. Hello, and welcome back. I hope you enjoyed our special episodes, but now it's time to jump back into the main narrative. This and the next 8 to 10 episodes will cover the Gaelic Wars. This cataclysmic war was an incredibly important event for everyone involved, and its effects would ripple throughout history. The Gaelic Wars brought Gaul under the control of Rome, and ensured that a Latin language, a Roman culture, and a Roman political and legal system would dominate Gaul long after Rome fell. And speaking of Rome, the Gaelic Wars played an essential part in Rome's transition from the Roman Republic to the Roman Empire. It was during these wars that the most famous Roman of all time, Gaius Julius Caesar, became the hero of Rome, and it was the wealth and armed forces from Gaul that helped Caesar launch his conquest of Rome. Furthermore, the Gaelic Wars were of remarkable importance to European and world history for a number of reasons. First, they violently brought together the Celtic and the Mediterranean worlds. Second, the surviving history, the commentary on the Gaelic Wars, served as a blueprint for imperialistic conquest. This would be copied for the next 2,000 years by many European countries, most famously Britain, which fully utilized the divide-and-conquer tactics in Africa. While it is clear that the Gaelic Wars are important, I struggled over the last few weeks over how to accurately portray them. On the one hand, this period had profound effects across space and time, and it is easy to read into them as a world-changing event. On the other hand, when one actually studies the Gaelic Wars, it is incredible to find that many of the events occurred for petty, ignoble reasons. It is for that reason that I resorted to historical theory to better grasp this Janus-faced nature of the wars. Now, if anyone got a nervous jolt when I said historical theory and thought, oh no, this is when Gary turns into a boring, tenured professor rambling about nothing, let me just say that theory is, in my opinion, the most fascinating part of history. The philosophical processes that we use to decode the past are the most exciting part of historical study. Epic sagas of war, heroism, betrayal, and conquest are that much sweeter when they come with an understanding of what these all mean. So let me briefly set up some of the theory I'm going to use to examine this period, 
And thankfully, we never even have to leave France to do this, since French historians are among the most influential of all time. All the theory I'm using essentially revolves around one big question. Is history driven by gradual change or by cataclysmic events? It's a simple enough question, but it is one that has puzzled people for millennia. For thousands of years, up until the 19th century, histories mostly argued for cataclysmic events. This was based on an old theory called Great Man Theory. This theory held that history is merely the biography of great men, and yes, specifically men, as up until the 18th century, women were disparaged as incapable of bringing about revolutionary change. This theory dominated in large part because histories were often commissioned by great rulers as propaganda. Examples of this would be Philip of Macedon and his son Alexander the Great rewriting history to make Macedon an extended part of Greece and themselves descendants of Zeus. Another example was Justinian the Great of Byzantium, who commissioned histories that depicted him as remaking the Roman Empire and as a defender of Christendom. Of course, in between the two is Julius Caesar's own The Commentary on the Gaelic Wars, which he himself wrote to propagandize himself to the people of Rome. Because histories were written for and by great rulers, History itself inevitably depicted powerful men as the driving force of history and their conquests and tenure as those cataclysmic events that moved history forward. This view was challenged during the European Enlightenment as philosophers argued that much written history was propaganda meant to dupe the common people and derive them of agency. The Enlightenment led to the Age of Revolutions, during which the common people asserted their place as a part of societies, most visibly in France when the Third Estate abolished the power of the nobility and the clergy. In the 1840s, Karl Marx theorized that the masses would bring an end to all history when they violently overthrew every political and religious structure, asserting all power to themselves. Thus, the popular view that history was largely static and moved when great figures pushed history forward was replaced by Enlightenment liberals and later Marxist historians who held that history was pushed forward gradually by the masses and that the so-called great people merely claimed to push history forward in order to propagate themselves. For a long time, the Marxists dominated history, most notably in France, where in the 1930s to 1950s, the single most important historic school emerged, the Annals School, which was organized around the journal of the same name. It was from this school that a number of genius historians emerged, such as Marc Bloch and Georges Lefebvre. This first generation of Annalists argued that history occurred gradually over centuries. This viewpoint reached its zenith in the 1960s with Fernand Braudel. If you're not a historian, chances are you haven't heard of Braudel. But if you are a historian, 
you have to know who he is. Fernand Braudel revolutionized the way history was done when he changed his dissertation topic from a history of Philip II and the Mediterranean to an examination of the Mediterranean and its effects on Philip II. Braudel's two-volume magnum opus is as brilliant as it is in-depth as it is unreadable. In it, Braudel studied virtually every aspect of the Mediterranean and how the natural environment was essential to the making of the region and its people. It was in this work he popularized the term longue durée, literally the long duration, as he believed historical change occurred over centuries. Perhaps my favorite example he provided is why the Muslim Moors of North Africa failed to conquer France while the Muslim Turks successfully conquered Anatolia. By studying the camels used by these two peoples, he found that the Moors were using camels specifically bred for the desert, who were unused to France's cold climate. Whereas the Turks had bred camels taken from Arabia over hundreds of years into colder climates and thus could withstand the cold. This allowed the Turks to chase Christian armies up into the mountains, whereas the Moorish camels couldn't. This little observation is brilliant because it shows how humans are not purely the drivers of history and that the environment and even animals sometimes are responsible for the rise and fall of nations, as in the case of Byzantium, which fell in large part due to the Turkish camel, whereas the Moorish camel couldn't overthrow the Frankish Empire. Furthermore, Braudel studied weather patterns, ocean currents, and sea currents in the Mediterranean, and how long it took to breed different animals for different climates, and Braudel eventually concluded that history changed over centuries. In Braudel's mind, Napoleon Bonaparte did not cause a cataclysmic shift in history as the pre-existing conditions that brought him to power and the culture that produced him were already in place. For Braudel, if Napoleon didn't exist, someone else would have taken his place. While the early Annalists held that history took place over centuries, the next generation of Annalists countered that there were such things as catalysts and important people who did have an impact on history. It was this generation that argued that while the longue durée produced Napoleon the general and created the conditions for his rise, Napoleon himself certainly caused a huge shift in history. If Napoleon hadn't existed, then, yes, someone may have taken his place, but that someone would have been killed in Italy by the Austrians and the French Empire would have never come into being, Spain would never have been conquered, meaning the Spanish Empire wouldn't have collapsed as early as it did, which meant the United States wouldn't have been able to easily dominate the divided nations of South America, and thus history would look completely different from how it has occurred. This fourth generation of Annalists 
essentially created the viewpoint that most historians take today. By abandoning both great man theory and Marxist determinism, today's historians now accept that there are long-term historical currents and cataclysmic events which move history forward. On the one hand, it took centuries for the Turks to breed camels and learn the arts of war to conquer desert and mountainous terrain, but it was Osman I who used these to create the Ottoman Empire. A modern example of the convergence between long durée and catalysts would be the September 11, 2001 terror attacks in New York City. The tensions between the United States and much of the Muslim world go back hundreds of years, but that one event proved to be fundamental to our world of politics and presented a huge break with what came before. So, why is this all important? Why did I just summarize historical theory on long-term events versus catalysts? Well, Because after reading up on the Gaelic Wars, I think that no other period in history provides a better example of the intermixing of the long durée and catalysts. The Gaelic Wars occurred both as a struggle between two different civilizations that had developed over millennia and because of immediate political reasons occurring in Rome at the time. Let's begin by looking at the long-term epic historical trends that caused the war before turning to the immediate and often petty causes that began the conflict. The first long-term cause of the war is the fact that the natural geography of Europe had created two separate worlds. North of the Alps, there was an Atlantic world dominated by the Celts. This Atlantic world included northern Iberia, Gaul, and the British Isles. I call this a world because the different Celtic tribes of these regions traded with each other, spoke similar languages, were part of a larger Celtic ethnic group, shared many religious practices, and often engaged in warfare with each other and on behalf of each other. Trade routes stretched from northwestern Iberia up through western Gaul and into Britannia as peoples, goods, and ideas moved from one Celtic region to another. But this Celtic world was largely cut off by the Alps and the Pyrenees from the Mediterranean world. The Mediterranean world was an interconnected space centered around sea trade as people, goods, ideas, and political power was traded across the coastal regions of the Mediterranean. While the people of the Mediterranean were not all one, they did see themselves as having a largely connected culture, and it's for that reason that Rome could easily incorporate Latins, Etruscans, and Greeks as they all had a shared heritage. In history, when two people of different ethnicities, religions, political institutions, and cultures live side by side, conflict is unfortunately natural. The Atlantic world and the Mediterranean world were divided by thousands of years of physical separation, and when Rome began to move into southern Gaul, 
these two worlds were approaching an apocalyptic clash. The second long-term trend that led to the Gaelic Wars was the emergence of the Gauls as the boogeyman of Rome. In 390 BCE, the Gauls burned much of Rome to the ground and nearly wiped it out entirely. This scarred the Roman people, and the Gaelic barbarian became a common theme in their early myths and stories. When Hannibal tried to conquer Rome in the Second Punic War, the Gauls sided with him and again nearly destroyed the Roman Republic. When the Germanic Cimbri descended into Italy, the Gauls joined them and for a third time threatened to destroy Rome. Three times over three centuries, the Gauls nearly wiped Rome out. They were the natural enemy of Rome and a constant source of insecurity for them. Gaul remained an existential threat to Rome, and as long as Gaul existed, Rome was always in danger. Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor provides fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Factor includes a variety of plans, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto, among others. Factor is perfect for a busy routine, with high-quality, healthy food that fits into your daily schedule. Mouth-watering dishes like chicken and mushroom tetrazzini, cavatappi and Italian-style pork ragu, and artichoke and spinach chicken are all on this week's menu, and you don't want to miss out on those. In addition to savory meals, Factor offers snacks and wellness shots, the latter of which has become a personal favorite of mine. Go to factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code frenchhistory50 to get 50% off Factor Meals. That again is factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code frenchhistory50. Sign up today. Your stomach will thank you. The third long-term trend that brought about the Gaelic Wars was the rise of an entirely new group of people on the eastern side of the Rhine, the Germans. The Germans were a seemingly numberless group of warriors that terrified both the Gauls and Rome. The Germans were always threatening to invade Gaul, and the Gauls used the Rhine as a dam to hold back a potentially unending flood of Germans that would overwhelm them. The hordes of Germans put pressure on the Gaelic kingdoms as on the one hand, the Gauls knew that the German hordes could turn the tide against Rome if they were to ever unite, while on the other hand, they feared that once Rome was defeated, the Celts would be conquered by the incoming Germans. Caught between the rising Romans and the Germanic multitudes, the middle ground that the Gauls occupied was disappearing, as soon they would have to pick a side. One final long-term cause was that the Romans were developing a highly efficient system of incorporating conquered peoples into their own political entity. They had already brought Italy, Iberia, Greece, and North Africa under their control when they conquered southern Gaul, turning it into the province of Narbonensis. 
Narbonensis showed that Rome could turn a Gaelic people into their own citizenry, wiping out the Gaelic language and identity, subsuming it within a Roman one. Rome was creating a national identity based on citizenship rather than a tribal one based on ethno-linguistic heritage. This ability to turn captured peoples into Romans made Rome believe in the superiority of its own culture and justified its missions of conquest while terrifying the Gauls who feared for their own independence. These were the four long-term causes of the conflict, some stretching back literally thousands of years as geography and human migration split Europe between these two peoples. But just as there were epic long-term trends, there were also short-term causes that weren't about ethnic conflict, national honor, or the death struggle between civilizations. Some of these short-term causes were purely real politic solutions to immediate problems and could even be incredibly petty. Before we get to the list of immediate causes of the Gaelic Wars, it is time to introduce the main character of our events and one of the most fascinating figures in history, Gaius Julius Caesar. To anyone who wants a much longer biography of Caesar, I would recommend turning to the History of Rome podcast, which has been a personal inspiration to me and literally thousands of other history podcasts since it is the classic one. For now, I'm just going to hit the main points and those that are relevant to our narrative of Gaul and France in general. Gaius Julius Caesar was born in 100 BCE. His family was moderately influential as Caesar's father served as the governor of Asia, that Roman province which today is western Anatolia, and his aunt Julia married Gaius Marius, mentioned in our last episode as the single most important person in the Roman Republic after he reconfigured the army and saved Rome from the Cimbri invasion. But events took a hard left turn against Caesar with the rise of Lucius Cornelius Sulla. To make a long story short, Sulla rose in prominence rapidly, and Marius saw him as a threat, which led to the First Roman Civil War. During the ensuing civil war, Sulla proved victorious and purged most of his enemies. The young Caesar became a target since, with the early death of his father, he was the head of the Julian clan, and he was married to the daughter of Cinna, Marius's second-in-command. Caesar was put on the list of people destined for execution, but his mother and the Vestal Virgins pleaded for him, and Sulla spared him, though he stripped him of his inheritance and his wife's dowry. While Caesar kept his life, he was without means, and so Sulla believed Caesar could never become a prominent Roman. In 80 BCE, Caesar went to western Anatolia to pursue a military career in case Sulla changed his mind and decided to have him killed. Caesar was an exemplary soldier and won many honors, including the laurel wreath, 
meaning that all Romans, regardless of status, had to stand when he entered a room during festivals. In 78 BCE, Sulla died, and Caesar returned to Rome and pursued a legal career and found he was a great orator, and quickly became popular. Now he was both a great soldier and a great politician, a truly incredible and dangerous combination. Caesar also proved to be incredibly ambitious, and he took on enormous debts, both to fund public works that made him popular with the masses, and to bribe politicians to support him, both of which made him incredibly popular. But throughout his political career, he constantly had to look over his shoulder as his creditors threatened to imprison or even murder him as he owed incredible sums of money for all of his projects and political kickbacks. But he found a way out. In 62 BCE, Caesar got himself appointed to govern Hispania Ulterior. As governor, he was freed from legal retribution for his tenure, allowing him to briefly escape his creditors. While there, he invaded the silver mines of western Hispania to pay off his debts. While there, he subjugated many of the tribes of western Hispania and confiscated their silver mines to pay off his debts. Furthermore, while he was in Hispania, he learned administration and large-scale military coordination alongside the value to be gained from raiding native populations of their wealth, something which he carried with him for the rest of his days. But even as he paid off his old debts, he ran up new ones, as he continued to fund massive public works and bribed more people to give him even more power. At this time, Rome was dominated by two of Sulla's former generals, Marcus Licinius Crassus and Gnaeus Pompeius, better known as Pompey. Crassus was the richest man in Rome, but that's about all he had going for him, as Pompey was by far the more popular and respected politician. Crassus, seeing that Caesar was rapidly on the rise, worked out a deal with him, wherein Crassus paid off some of Caesar's debts and guaranteed others in exchange for his support to counterbalance Pompey. While Pompey and Crassus were at odds, Caesar appealed to both of them to further his own aims. He cemented this alliance by marrying his daughter Julia to Pompey. Thus, the first triumvirate was born out of a combination of Pompey's support among the optimate elite Caesar's support among the populares, and Crassus' incredible wealth. While the Senate wasn't neutered yet, it was clear that these three men ruled Rome. But Caesar still had some very serious problems to deal with. He was horrendously in debt and kept going further into debt as he borrowed more money to use for patronage and bribes. Meanwhile, Events up in Gaul soon provided Rome with a potential excuse to launch a war. As I mentioned in episode 9, the Arverni tribe was tired of being under the control of the Adwai, and this led them to do the unthinkable. They invited the German king, Ariovistus, to join with them to overthrow the Adwai, which they did. This was a cause for alarm in Rome, as the last time the Celts and Germans allied, 
it was during the Cimbri invasion, and many Roman politicians knew that no more Germans could be allowed to cross the Rhine if Rome was to remain safe. For the time, Rome did nothing, but this Germanic invasion was the first short-term cause of the Gaelic Wars. The second and most immediate cause of the war was that Caesar was poorer than a college student majoring in creative writing and had even more debt. In 59 BCE, Caesar got himself appointed governor of Cisalpine Gaul and Transalpine Gaul, along with Illyricum, and he planned to conquer Gaul entirely, both to promote himself politically and to plunder its wealth to pay off its debtors. This is what makes Julius Caesar so fascinating to me. Perhaps more than any other human being in history, Caesar combined grand destiny with immediate political opportunism. On the one hand, Caesar was about to fight a war thousands of years in the making that would bring together the two halves of Europe and determine the fate of Western civilization and much of world civilization. On the other hand, he was launching a war that would kill millions simply because he couldn't pay off his bills and didn't want to run out of credit the next time he had to fund a circus. On the one hand, Caesar was undoing nearly 400 years of Gallic terror and posing himself as the salvation of the Roman people avenging them for the near destruction of their city and ending ten generations of fear by bringing the barbarians to heel. On the other hand, he was invading a foreign land because it would help him win his next election. More than Charlemagne, Napoleon, or any other figure I can imagine, Caesar was the fulfillment of long-term historical shifts and the catalyst for immediate world-rending changes. One major reason why this was the case was that Caesar literally wrote the history of the Gaelic Wars, and it is in these histories that Caesar blurred beyond recognition the line between legend and propaganda. One major reason why this was the case was that Caesar literally wrote the history of the Gaelic Wars, and it is in these histories that Caesar blurred beyond recognition the line between legend and propaganda. Sometimes fate offered Caesar a small chance at incredible glory, and he never missed an opportunity to capture it. Other times, Caesar would force fate's hand, winning seemingly unimportant victories over unknown tribes and later claiming that he was avenging ancient Romans against their perennial enemies. No other human being in actions and words so deftly combined destiny and opportunity as Julius Caesar, and as we will see, the Gaelic Wars was both an epic clash of civilizations and Caesar's own personal PR campaign, to help him conquer Rome against his rival Pompey. Next week, we will dive headfirst into the first year of the Gaelic Wars. Each future episode will deal with roughly one year of campaigning, 
with one special episode between years 5 and 6 to talk about important events across Rome that will impact our story. I hope you're ready for something truly incredible as next week we begin Caesar's Campaigns in Gaul. As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to visit our page and either make a one-time donation or become a Patreon, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for listening. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.